Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. If you've been with us, you know that we are in week seven of an eight-week series called Saints and Sinners. This is a series through chapters three and four of the Gospel of John, the fourth book of the New Testament, in which we see... Jesus proclaiming who he is, and he's doing this proclaiming to people who've been in church for a long time and are still missing the mark, they're still not understanding, and then he's turning around and proclaiming to people who've never been to church. We are, within that set of eight weeks, we've got three weeks telling the story of the woman at the well, if you're familiar with that story, if you've been with us the last two weeks. This is the third and final week of that particular part of the story. And so we're going to see a little bit more of what's going on with this woman who had never been to church, didn't even specifically know if she was welcome or invited, and so church came to her. Amen? She was going for a drink of water, and her creator walked up and said hello. How many of you have lived a life where if your creator didn't walk up and say hi, you would have never found him because you weren't looking? So that's where this woman is at. Oh, okay. I am being, I'm being given hand signals from the front. The title of today's sermon is called No Shame and No Hunger. We're going to see one character of the story who has no shame and the other character who has no hunger. You will figure it out as we read the text. John chapter 4, starting at verse 27. Read with me if you would. This is right after him saying to her, I am the Messiah. uses the divine name about himself. Just then, so as he's making this declaration, his disciples came back. They were inside, again, they were trying to find kosher lunch in a Samaritan village, and we all laughed about it last week. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Why or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar, blah, 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 blah. The water, no, that's not even the word. <sighs> English, Greg, English. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. We're hearing John repeat himself. Eternal life, eternal life, eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? You know the saying, one plants and another harvests. And it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant Others had already done the work, and now you will get to share, sorry, will get to gather the harvest. 
Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. Is that a good day in ministry? Anybody ever, who was a Christian here, ever wished they could just go to work, talk to somebody at the office, and then they'll tell everybody else? And all of a sudden you're having a church service with 60 people. Like, wouldn't that be a good day? You come home, honey, how was work? Well, let me tell you. That's a good day. It's an even better day. Because with an entire town, many of them believing in Christ, Jesus doesn't have to preach in Samaria anymore if he doesn't want. It's what a disciple is. We replicate ourselves for proclaiming who our Savior is. So his 12 disciples might not have the chops, might not realize that God's love is for the whole world, but he already started something, didn't he? He made worshipers, just like he talked about in the previous part of the text. Holy Spirit, would you please take the scriptures and make them sink into our heart that they would effectively bear fruit that honors the Father and is a blessing to our city. In Jesus' great name we pray, God's people said, amen. Note takers, here you go. If you want to know you're a Christian, look at whether you're shameless in your testimony of who Jesus is. If you want to know, shamelessness might be the easy button. Do you have it? Unless you're a Christian who's feeling unnecessarily condemned right now. I mean, you you might be thinking, oh man, I have reservations. Oh, I get butterflies when I want to tell my friend about Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your whole life. Fundamentally, are you ashamed of your Savior? Do you feel the need to apologize for your Savior? We live in a culture anymore that has taken the words love, hate, ripped them out of Webster's Dictionary and redefined them. Love means whatever we want it to mean. Hate means you disagree with me. And now that we've commandeered those two terms, God for sure doesn't exist because he apparently never had the right to define the terms. So as I walk through Citrus Heights in 2019, I am pervasively, consistently tempted to be ashamed if and when a conversation of faith comes up because I have all these assumptions about what you think of me ahead of time. Yes, I'm a Christian and I already know you're hearing I'm a hater. Oh, I hate gay people. That, that must be what you think, because that's the predominant cultural narrative. So I am now embarrassed to tell you I'm a Christian because of what you probably think that means. And then all kinds of books get written, and all kinds of interesting sermons get preached. Entire denominations get split in two, because what? We're ashamed of our Savior. We do not like that the Bible says things that make us aliens and foreigners in a strange land. We wanted to be comfortable. And we are embarrassed of what the scriptures say. And so to identify as a Christian, we start hemming and hawing. And that's dangerous. 
Because we are not trusting the Holy Spirit of the living God to communicate truth through the gospel. It makes no sense that one quick conversation between Jesus and a woman with lots of moral baggage, lots of spiritual baggage, lots of ethical baggage, racism and, and sexism as barriers between these two, one quick proclamation of who he is transforms a city and probably a region. That's God at work. And you and I, if we are Christians, we are tempted to believe that the evangelistic work rests on us that's stupid and it's arrogant. I proclaim from this pulpit every week boldly because of what I believe the Holy Spirit's gonna do with it. I don't have the power to make you love God. No one does. Evangelism is inherently spiritual. This is what the evangelist is trying to tell us at the beginning, back in John 3. Look, the Holy Spirit is the one who changes hearts. Does it happen at the point of the proclamation of the gospel? Of course. Romans 1.16 again. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. This message that Christ's death on the cross is perfectly effective to wash away your sins if you'd believe it and receive it for yourself. That message is what the Holy Spirit uses to transform the heart. And if we forget that, if we think that we have to kind of help God out and do him a favor, we're going to have shame. We're going to have shame in the way that we talk about the Christian faith. We talk about the Bible. Read with me again at verse 28. Very interesting. The woman left her water jar beside the well. You don't do that. Like that's your personal, that's a very important personal property. So you're seeing this, this almost mindless excitement, right? Leaves the jar and walks slowly and casually to the village, pondering, how am I going to share this with my girlfriends? No? Oh, we must have two different translations. Okay, hold on, hold on. The woman left her water jar beside the well, and she went and signed up for an apologetics class, because until she's been through the class, there's no possible way she could share who Jesus is with someone else. No, you guys are giving me a lot of grief. I'm trying the best I can. Ran back to the village telling who? Everyone. Come and see. We talked about that last week. Who did go and tell ministry? Jesus. He came to her. And who else did go and tell ministry? She did. She ran into the village. And now that she's there, what does she have for them? Come and see. She knows where her Savior is, so now it's come and see. He's standing, he's sitting at the well, quarter mile away, real close, let's go. Some of us, brothers and sisters, we're not involved in come and see because we don't know where our Savior is going to be. Like, will Jesus be there if I invite them? And this is what is so mission critical about our Bible teachers, you're going to be terrified to bring a friend to church on a Sunday morning unless you know they're going to see Jesus. You're going to be terrified to bring them into your disciple group unless you know that disciple group is going to clearly present Jesus, your Sunday school class. And I mean this by way of gentle rebuke to all of our Bible teachers. 
if good-hearted Christians will not bring their friends, uh-oh, because we know that they love their friends, they're concerned that I'm going to bring my friends out to the well and Jesus might not be there this week. So our Bible teaching is critical that Jesus is presented every single time. Who is he? And I don't mean some canned gospel message tacked on to a sermon about being nice. I mean, this whole book's about Jesus. So whether it's Wednesday night or Monday night or in, in a Saturday night disciple group, is Jesus going to be presented? If Jesus is presented faithfully, the Christians in the room will have no problem running into town and saying, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. This is a really scary verse. Straight off the lips of Jesus in Matthew 10. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. If you knew in advance that Jesus was your defense attorney, do you want him to bring his best defense or do you want him to go get coffee? When you stand in front of a righteous judge, all of your sins there on a jumbotron, and God the Father, the righteous judge, Jesus can be there in the courtroom to say, Father, you are correct. Greg has done all of these things, but I bled and died on a cross to wash all of them away. Or do I want him out having coffee and I'm just on my own in front of the judge? Is that what I want? Jesus is saying that a heart that is genuinely captivated by the love of God, that has been transformed, that loves and trusts God, that heart will naturally proclaim before people normal Christian behavior. Not super Christians. Oh, the super Christians, they're the ones that go do evangelism. Not true. Anybody ever, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Anybody ever been in a church, been in a church situation, maybe here, where somewhere deep in your heart you genuinely thought, oh, sharing the gospel, that's for, that's for really, really holy Christians. That's for super Christians. That's, I don't know if I could ever do that. Right? We take all these things that the Bible says are normal, and we go, oh, that, those are the really, really strong Christians. They do that. Not according to Jesus. He doesn't lie. Christians do this because we share what we love. Joy cannot be complete until it is shared. The woman lost a coin, sweeps the house, finds it, and invites everyone to come and celebrate. Enter into my what? Joy. Because her joy cannot be complete until she has invited others into it. The father waits for his long lost son who rebelliously left. And that son comes back. He not only expresses his joy of running toward his son, throwing his arms around him, but then orders servants to what? Bring a robe, a ring, sandals for his feet, slaughter the fattened calf. We're all going to have a party. Enter into my joy. 
I wonder if we spend too much time thinking about heaven just as a rewards thing, like, oh, I'm going to get, you know, for whatever good stuff I did, I'm going to get rewards. I, I, I think that we would view heaven a little different if we realized we were all just being invited into the Father's joy. Like, heaven exists because God wants to throw a party, and a merciful, loving being invites unworthy beings to come to the master's table. You guys are dead quiet. That was big, I promise you. Go, go study. Uh, what if heaven wasn't about our joy, it was about his? That's what I'm saying. But he's so loving, he can't throw a party on his own. He needs unworthy children to be washed in his own blood to come and celebrate with him. A few weeks back, we had a family forum and we talked about what are the few things that we would like as guiding principles deep down for ARCF. We talked through four things. We want to be a people that connects in authentic relationships, that we grow in Christian maturity, we serve both God and others, and we go tell others about Jesus. Well, this fourth one just popped up in this text, didn't it? So let's talk about it. That was a fill in the blank for you note takers. Go tell. This value cannot work this core value will never take root in your life while you're ashamed of Jesus. Does that make sense? Fully one quarter of what we said is going to be our ethos as a church, a quarter, minimum, will not ever take root in your life. It will not ever work when you and I are ashamed of Jesus because we're not going to go tell. And shame is interesting. If I go to a restaurant and I have a terrible experience, will I go online to share about it? Say yes. So I'm not ashamed of a bad experience. I am very comfortable saying I went there, I gave them my money, I was disappointed. If I have a good experience, am I ashamed? No. I went there, I gave them my money, I had a good experience. What is shame? Shame is about identity. That I feel like some, something bad, some bad statement has been around. Like if, if the Ku Klux Klan opened up a coffee shop down Auburn and all of their proceeds went to fund the Klan, then you, by shopping there, might feel shame whether you had good coffee or bad coffee. You're ashamed because there's an identity statement made about me that I would support the cause. So what is really going on when I am ashamed of Jesus? There is some kind of an identity crisis going on. This something negative is going on about me and about who I am. I am ashamed of my Savior. Here's what, here's what this means. In case you look at the Matthew 10 verse and you think, oh my gosh, if I don't share the gospel with my friend, Jesus is going to send me to hell. That's not what that verse is saying at all. Somebody who knows who they are in Christ, I am, all my sins washed away by the merciful sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and I am now a son or daughter of the Most High, adopted in. I know who I am, and there's no way you can be ashamed of that, actually, is the point. It is not possible to get a huge upgrade, to go from slave to son. It's not 
possible to be ashamed of that. It's actually not possible. So in case you were really worried about Matthew 10, Jesus is talking about behavior indicative of a son or daughter. Sons and daughters walk differently. They lost their mind and they sauntered through town. I was adopted by the king. And you can look at me like I'm a fool and I'm fine with that. As David said, I'll become even more undignified than that. Are you kidding? I know who I am because I know who my daddy is and I saw his cross that he used to adopt me. Actually, before we get to that, I want to... I didn't have time to put this in the slides. Just saw this in the news yesterday. Some of you may know... Uh, well, let's make a trivia game out of it. What's the fastest growing church on planet Earth right now? Christian church. Fastest growing Christian church. Close. So by best estimates from Voice of the Martyrs, the fastest growing church right now is Iran. Right? It, it, the church at her weakest is a church that's in power and comfortable. You want to kill a movement, give them everything they want. Okay. Iran, not so much. Um, it's estimated when the Ayatollahs took over, there were about 5,000 Christians in Iran, and now the estimates are approaching 2 million about 40 years later. And uh, somebody through the Associated Press was able to interview uh, a woman in Iran who has a secret house church meeting in her home. And she said, this, mind you, the internet, isn't the internet fascinating? News from Iran comes as fast as twi a tweet. It doesn't, it's not a slow process anymore. This was said less than four days ago. Disciples forsake the world and cling to Jesus till he comes. Converts don't. Disciples aren't engaged in a culture war. Converts are. Disciples cherish, obey, and share the word of God. Converts don't. Disciples choose Jesus over anything and everything else. Converts don't. Converts run when the fire comes. Disciples don't. Talking about running when the fire comes means something to me from a sister who has to hide everything she does. If you want to know what shame looks like, actually, if you want to know what shamelessness looks like, look into the courageous living and the courageous proclaiming of brothers and sisters in different contexts. That's one way to see it. Now, although I had a brother talking to me less than an hour ago disagreeing, get out of theoretical mathematics, get into normal mathematics. How many sides are there to a quarter? <laughs> Take your college statistics class and shove it. It's just two sides. 
Simple man, simple math. I'm the kind of guy who has to take off my shoe to count to 11, so you just need to be gentle with me here. Two sides. How could you go about taking a quarter in your hand? How could you get George Washington's face and the eagle? How could you get them both to show face up at the same time, not using a mirror? Consistently showing at the same time, not spinning. That's 50, that's one, then one, then one, then one. How do you get them both consistently at the same time? What we're talking about here is duplicity. I love Jesus, therefore I proclaim, or I'm ashamed. And as silly and insane as it would appear to have a human being sitting in the corner of a jack-in-the-box, quickly flipping a cord, trying to get both, that is what the Christian is doing when we are trying to proclaim the goodness of who Jesus is, but I'm still ashamed. I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed, I don't want to identify with my Savior, but I, like they just don't happen. They won't happen, they can't happen. Mutually exclusive. Shame, proclaim. Shame, proclaim. Shame, proclaim. You know what we get to do? Pick. We don't get to keep waffling back and forth and hope that it works out. We get to pick. It is my belief, and this is the reason that other Christians will keep harping on it, saying, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. It is my belief that the more a Christian stares into the face of Jesus, the more we are reminded of his infinite worth. It is the infinite worth of Christ that makes shame go away. David said what he did because he was the best worshiper around it's the same guy who wrote a bunch of songs and sang them to God and wrestled a bear and killed it with his bare head. Like, he was a worshiper, and that's why he had no shame. Would anybody love it if they had less shame in their life? If they could be free to give God all that he deserves because shame's power was broken? I don't know if its power is ever going to be fully broken until God takes his church home because we're sinners. But we can sure do war. We can do war against shame in our Savior the way we do war against pride, the way we do war against lust or gluttony or selfishness or anything else. We can do war. War's not easy. Your next blank. Christians should desire to obey God more than they want their next meal. We should, who are Christians, we should desire to obey God more than we even want our next meal. Read with me at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus, spotting a teaching moment, says, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did he have Cracker Jacks hidden in his robe and he didn't tell us? That's essentially what they ask. 
Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Do you see this uh, in verse 3, by the way? Do you see a kind of cluelessness from the twelve in this moment? Did we see a cluelessness when Jesus said, if you only knew the one standing in front of you, you would ask, and I would give you living water that bubbles up to eternal life. And she goes, "Uh, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. Did we see a kind of cluelessness when he said, I tell you the truth, for eternal life you're going to have to be born again. Huh? Can a grown man enter into his mother's womb and be... There's this continued pattern through John, which is really, again, cool how he sets up a theme. He started off with the Logos, all knowledge in the universe, all wisdom in the universe, and then we see this wisdom interacting with the foolish over and over again. So if you came to church today because you needed a little pick-me-up, I've got good news for you. You're a fool. And so am I, and our Savior gets through to us anyway because he loves us more than we love ourselves. There's actually nothing good in a news where I tell you how awesome you are, because now you have to bear the full weight of being amazing and being morally sufficient on your own. You solve your own problems. That'll crush you. It is the best news in the world to be told that I'm a fool and that I am a sinner. That is great news if there is a merciful, wise, loving Savior. So we see this continued theme of confusion. Did somebody bring him food? I don't get it. Then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. Good luck explaining that one. Wrap your heart around that. You guys are so wrapped around the axle about going and fetching lunch. That's all well and good. But you have no idea how much I get from obeying my father. And then, in case we were confused that maybe he was just talking about an exclusive relationship between him and the father, he then turned around and invites them into that same ministry. Workers, harvest, you guys, let's go. Come on. He invites what will one day be his church. Get satisfaction out of obeying the Father. There is no satisfaction like that. We don't believe it. 21st century America actually has a term called fourth meal. Thank you, Taco Bell. We will eat and eat and eat, never once thinking about the nourishment that comes from obeying God. And who's talking? The guy who's talking spent 40 days in the wilderness with nothing to eat, meditating on the word of God, apparently Deuteronomy, because when Satan himself shows up, he whips out Deuteronomy and smacks Satan with it three times. If you think Deuteronomy is boring, you need to look closer. If it can crush Satan, I'm just saying... If you or I, if we got locked into the octagon with Satan, it's not going well for us. 
one of the most powerful angels God ever created, it's not going to go well. But apparently, if even a, 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 to some of us, obscure chunk of Scripture, what? The Word of God, the Logos. The Word became flesh. It's a piece of the essence of Jesus. If Scripture is in the octagon with Satan, it's not going to go well for Satan. So what does that tell the Christian about us reading, studying, and cherishing the Word of God? Jesus says, I get nourishment from obedience. He didn't say he got nourishment from giving lots of money to missionaries, although that could be obedience. He didn't say he got lots of nourishment from singing songs, although that very much could be obedience. It could be. He leaves it broad. Broad, doing the will of my Father, whatever that is. He gives some specific invitation. Hey, proclaiming the kingdom is, is a part of that obedience that I'm doing right now. You guys are in Samaria, but you're not missionaries yet. You're just shopping. I'm making worshipers. And it's not that the men are doing anything wrong. They're doing exactly what Jesus asked them to do. But when they come back, it's time to teach. You guys were going to have a conniption fit if you watched me talk to this woman, so I had to send you away. The kingdom of God, we're having a Normandy invasion of the love of God into a people that are not even allowed to come to church, don't even want to come to church, and you guys can't handle it. So I'm going to have to show you after the fact. The disciples can barely get their words out of what's going on, this or that, hear a little bit of teaching from Jesus about participating in the harvest. And he, there's this what? Illustration. For all we know, 50, 70, 150 people come running out from the village to meet Jesus. So all of a sudden, these 12 disciples are totally not in control. They cannot say to Jesus what they're really thinking because all these people are coming and relating rightly to Jesus in the midst of the confusion of the 12. I get nourished from doing the will of my Father. And if you're like me, that's a scary thought. Because I like eating about times a day. I wonder if something would pop up into my small brain every hour or two. Greg, have you obeyed me? Have you done something to nourish your soul by obeying me? An hour or two later, Greg, have you obeyed me? Have you actually done something to advance the kingdom, to be a part of what you were adopted into? You were adopted into the family, but now are you participating as a family member? The important question for you, if you're a Christian who calls ARCF your church home, what would Citrus Heights see if ARCF wanted to obey God more than we wanted anything else? Are we a comfortable assuming that 
if we want God second, if he's our second desire, are we comfortable assuming that Christian behavior for this church family, we could behave a lot like the rest of our city and our world if we kept Jesus second? I'm a Christian in so much as it fits in with my predetermined views of sexuality. So I'll keep sleeping with my girlfriend, but I'll go to church on Sunday. That's called Jesus being second. I mean, man, Jesus should be thankful. Second is pretty high on my list. I'm a pretty important guy. I'm busy. The Dallas Cowboys only made it to eight in my priorities list. I've got work, I've got family, I've got friends. My wife is up, you know. Jesus made second on my list. He should be grateful. I mean, we talk this way. We, we just don't say it out loud. I want to submit to you, if you're a Christian, that if Jesus is second in your life, you're going to not have any problem fitting in with our city and our state. As long as the word of God will always bend to something else, it's fine. If you think California is at war with Christians right now, you're wrong. It's only at war with Christians who put God first. If you'll capitulate, everyone will be fine with you. We really, really need to preach through the book of Daniel. Here is a giant image of the king. Bow down and worship it. If not, you're going to be thrown into the flames. If you grew up in church, you heard that story over and over and over again. You didn't think you were going to watch America slowly turn into Babylon, did you? You'll be fine if you keep Jesus second. You'll be fine for a while. Until Jesus has to unfortunately one day say to you, you denied me before men, I have to deny you before my father. Now let's flip it. What if every one of us who loves Jesus absolutely, categorically fought tooth and nail that our time and our money, our energy, our relationships, our convictions, our politics, our sexuality, our workplace ethics, all of it bowed the knee to Jesus. Then what would Citrus Heights think of us? We already know part of the answer. Because when Daniel opens the window and prays three times a day, what happens? We already know what happens. Anything less than being thrown into a fire, anything less than that is the mercy of God. You don't believe me because something in your bones is so trained to the freedom that Americans enjoy. I want to beg you to open up Fox's Book of Martyrs and read it once a week. I want to beg you to follow Voice of the Martyrs on Facebook and read the articles that come through of what our brothers and sisters are going through right now. Anything less than being thrown into the lion's den is just the mercy of God. Maybe not the mercy of God on you. Maybe it's the mercy of God on Nineveh. Nineveh should have strung up Jonah by his toes, but by the mercy of God, they repented and Jonah survived. 
That was God's mercy on Nineveh, not just on Jonah. What would Citrus Heights see? What would they see if we wanted to obey God more than anything else? Because that's what nourished us. That's what we were hungry for, is to obey him. We'd see a radical use of our time. And I do mean radical. That some would even call perverse. Radical Christian sexuality, everybody else calls it perverse. That's so boring. That is so BC. That What is this, a Victorian England? Goodness gracious. You're, we're sexu- sexually liberated now. If your time and your energy, what about your money? There were 300 protesters in Toronto two weeks ago outside a new Chick-fil-A that was opening. Why were they protesting? Because Chick-fil-A had the audacity to donate money to a Christian camp. And the Christian camp has a statement of pretty normal evangelical belief, which includes heterosexuality being a part of Christian marriage. Oh, the horror! The chicken restaurant gave $150,000 three years ago to a Christian camp somewhere They don't tell you that the camp is a bunch of kids from hard places and the camp is for free. Like it's this unbelievably good, gracious, merciful thing. But since that camp has the audacity to believe the Bible is true, we're going to protest the fried chicken. Maybe we should be protesting the calories. But there's nothing wrong with, I mean, you spend your money the way you believe God wants you to spend your money and you just wait. What about your energy? Only have so much of it in a 24-hour period, right? And I want to be really careful in what I say here, so I'm not, I don't want anybody to feel judged or condemned. This is not a Pharisee moment. It's a genuine gut-check question. If you call yourself a Christian and ARCF is your church home, do you have a primary ministry in this church that you devote yourself to? The kind of a ministry where it has your heart. And so when you run out of energy, something else slips out of the schedule, not that. Do you guys know what I mean? When you love, love, love NFL football, and it's number one, and you spend less time with your kids, and your wife really was hoping you were going to help with the dishes, and, and this happened and that happened, you see what's ultimate. Your primary energy goes to what's most important, and then we, all of us, at some point at the end of the day, we run out of energy. Amen? Parents of toddlers, holla. Okay. There is a point where you're going to run out of energy. You're not God. Who gets your leftovers? It is my personal dream that everyone who calls ARCF their church home that every one of us has one ministry that never ever gets our leftovers. That's when we're firing on all cylinders because our ministry is meant to bless our city and bless each other. And the flock is really well taken care of at that point. Two questions to ask ourselves. If you're a guest today, ask yourself this one. Am I investigating the claims of Jesus for myself? This is critical. Nobody had to listen to the testimony of this woman as she ran back into town. But they did. A bunch of people 
decide to come out and check it out for themselves. And I cannot help but cynically looking at this story going, if this happened in 2019, I'd be sitting there working on my Hulu feed. You're crazy. Messiah, what on earth? I wonder if I'd even get up. These people got up and moved. Part of the come and see ministry is you have to come and see if you're the recipient. Are you genuinely investigating the claims of Jesus for yourself? The text says, they say to the woman, we believed when you proclaimed, we believed enough to get up and go on a quarter mile walk. But now that we've heard him for ourselves, we really believe he is the savior of the world. So cool. Because savior of the world, that's a way bigger title than what the Samaritan expectation of Messiah was. Something big happened when these Samaritans met Jesus and he was able to teach them for two full days. Something big happened. Are you you know, on a spiritual journey where you're going to let something big happen? If so, you've got to chase after Jesus for yourself. You've got to open that Bible and take a look at who Jesus is. For those of you that already love Jesus, do you have no shame and no hunger? Not ashamed of my Savior, and I'm not starving because I am consistently working hard to do the will of my Father. This is a tough, brutal question. We probably need to ask it every day of our life till he takes us home. Do I have no shame in my Savior and no hunger for lack of obeying God? If you're an elder or elder's wife and you'd be comfortable serving as a prayer counselor, would you please uh, place you guys, yourselves around the room? We like to take time to respond to the word of God in prayer, and we're going to spend a few moments doing that. Um, as I say every week, there is such a temptation to think that we are being discipled because we took in information, and that's just not true. If God said something to us today, we have to take action. We've got to do something. And if we are not doing something, we are playing games with God. So I want to encourage you to talk to the Lord right now if you're not sure what he's calling you to do from this text. If you do already know what he's calling you to do, I encourage you to share it with a friend, share it with a member of your disciple group that they can encourage you in that part of the journey. In just a few moments, I'll come back up to dismiss us. Holy Spirit, would you please fill this church to make us what you want us to be? God, we know church history is filled with congregations that might have rebelled against your truth and walked away and were rebuked the way that at least one church in the book of Revelation was rebuked. God, we know that other congregations have just been so comfortable in this world, not acting as strangers and aliens. And we ask your Holy Spirit to protect us from those temptations. Would you give us a radical love for a dark world that is born out of your radical love for us? We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, God's people said.